When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Available on demand starting today, Aubrey Plaza looks to shed her uptight image before college in The To-Do List. And Shia LaBeouf is Charlie Countryman, a guy who travels abroad and falls in love with a girl who is still tied to her violent past. Co-starring Evan Rachel Wood and available on demand during its theatrical run. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. This episode is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over a million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 25% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SVU1113. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on this week's show, creepy cults, killers in animal masks, menage a trois, bad cafeteria food, and telepathy orgasms. And that's just what Allison did last weekend. Plus, we'll review Greg Araki's Kaboom. You better believe it. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by Kaboom, we were tempted to spend years undercover investigating a doomsday cult mm -hmm. and then use our knowledge of human psychology to assume control of the cult right. and destroy the entire world. Yeah. But then we realized if we destroyed the entire world, mm. we would owe our corporate sponsors for our unproduced episodes. Yeah. yeah. So instead, we're going to take a look at some movies about the end of the world. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? Well, first up is The Grand Bastard. Mm, looking which, forward to this. Yeah, it's available on November 26th. All right. It's the latest film from Wong Kar Wai, the great Hong Kong filmmaker. And this is a martial arts movie. It's actually, it's not his first martial arts movie. He may not be someone you'd associate with, uh, with doing that kind of action. Mm -hmm. He did direct the 1994 film Ashes of Time, which is technically a wuxia movie. Uh, it was re-edited and re-released in 2008. Still like gorgeous and kind of incomprehensible a lot of meditations on love and betrayal and and all that stuff uh and as well as martial arts but the grandmaster is about Ip Man, who is the famous wing, wing chun grandmaster you know he uh, taught bruce lee and he has been the subject of several recent films and this one he's played by the great tony liang wang kar wai's favorite leading man and he uh plays this role with a lot of great stillness for someone who's incredibly good at, at martial arts. It also stars Zhang Ziyi. And I think, like I said, Wang Kar Wai is not someone I would immediately associate with action sequences, fight sequences, but he does stage them just gorgeously. He is a director I associate with things that just look lusciously amazing. And the movie starts off with a fight scene in the rain that is just so over-the-top indulgently beautiful. It's, it, it kind of puts you in the right mindset for what's to come, which is 
a occasionally fudging the facts look at uh, Ipman's life and kind of his his place as as a martial artist. And then there's the second war with Japan. And then there's this issue of kind of north uh, northern styles of kung fu versus southern styles of kung fu and then there are just these amazingly staged fights uh, including one with Zhang Di in which they make a vow to not break any of the really nice furniture around them so it's uh it's both a really intense fight scene but they also say whoever breaks a piece of furniture will lose the fight so it's a very careful fight scene but there are other so ones it's like if my mother did a fight scene. Exactly. She's like, you know, you whatever you want. You do what you want, but you better not break anything. Exactly. His name is Ip Man. Before he trained legends, he had to become one. Now, I'm a big fan of Wong Kar Wai, as you are. I haven't seen this movie yet. Where would you? I mean, you're. Where would you rank this one? Is it? Uh, I don't know. It's is I'd it good? Still, you it would, is good. You would yeah, recommend it. I do. It's good. I like it. I, it's I not one like of your it. absolute favorites. I don't know. I am still. I I was watching it very very recently. Right. right. This morning. <laughs> so uh, it's it's one that I'm still kind of processing i don't know it's it because it's different you know which version you saw that was a whole thing yeah the American it was cut. the international cut it was the international yeah. cut okay. uh, i, I want to take a look at the american cut yes. which was approved it was a consensual edit. right Ron <laughs> but, uh, was involved he gave a, a thumbs up but it's supposedly it's is. a weinstein it's a weinstein release in the u.s right. and they it's shorter it's significantly simplified right and, there i think are more kind of ex explanations in terms of title cards yes uh, and narr- the yes. history that's going Supposedly. on that's like in the in the backdrop i don't know i mean i don't think that many people complained that much about the the cut Wong Kar Wai said he was okay with it mm-hmm. but yeah you know it's always nice to see the original the original version but it is either way an incredibly gorgeous film that is the grandmaster it is available on demand on november 26th my other two picks are films I have not seen yet, but uh, I'm curious about, and they are both available now on demand. The first is a film called Kilimanjaro. It is directed by Walter Strafford. His first feature, though, he's worked on many other indies in roles like uh, as a gaffer or a key grip. Uh, he uh, had this at South by Southwest, and it was fairly well received and is the kind of uh, small scale indie that, you know, South by is a, is a good platform for. This one stars Brian Garrity as a man who's been going through his life on autopilot. Uh, He's in a relationship. He has an okay career, but doesn't seem that involved in either. And eventually his girlfriend kind of out of a need to, you know, get out of this inertia breaks up with him. And he does, he decides based on seeing a TV special about it, that he's going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. As you do. As you do. And he uh, he brings in his friend, a stockbroker named Mitch, played by Chris Marquette. <laughs> I was really, there's a lot of ways that could have gone. I was kind of hoping for a, like, he brought in his friend, a wacky pot smoking dog. You know, like it could have exactly. been, could have been more exciting. No, but okay. Stockbroker. Yeah, sleazy stockbroker, uh, okay. played by Chris Marquette. And the two basically attempt to prep to do, you know, it is no small feat no. to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. No. And, but it, it's mostly a film about kind of being stuck in a rut and about inertia and about actually making changes in your life. So, uh, so being like, I'm not going to do this stupid podcast anymore exactly. and watch all these movies. I'm going to Mount Kilimanjaro. With my pot smoking dog. 
Um, I really like Brian Garrity. He's got a really interesting role in this season of Boardwalk Empire in particular. So that was kind of what drew me to this one. It's, uh, it's always nice to see someone like that get a lead role. Uh, the other film that is currently available on demand is Violet and Daisy. This is the directorial debut of Jeffrey Fletcher, who wrote the screenplay for Precious. It was, I think, his first uh, adapted screenplay and became obviously a huge deal for him and for everyone involved. So this is the first film that he directed himself. And it is about two teenage assassins played by Alexis Bledel and Sorsha Ronan. And their um, pot-smoking dog. And their pot-smoking dog. Uh, understood really it's part of all movies that i recommend it also stars danny trejo and the late james gandolfini this is uh this movie got mixed reviews it's it's not been like universally beloved but it does have a the kind of premise that seems irresistible which is the two teenage girls who love you know pop music and shopping for new dresses and fund this lifestyle by killing people uh it's, it's the kind of thing that it always Always want to check that out. So uh, that is Violet and Daisy. It is currently available on demand. I, I, I saw that one. I think I reviewed it for somebody. Was not a huge fan. But the thing that I think is really outstanding, if you're a fan of him, is worth almost worth watching all by itself, is Gandolfini is really great in it. And, you know, not doing Tony Soprano, a much kind of quieter, sadder performance. And really, really well done. It's very... It's a, it's a sad role, and it's a great performance. And it's the kind of thing where, like... You know, that was one of the last things he did, and then he passed away, and you go back and look at it, and it's about a guy who's really kind of depressed and kind of has a death wish, so it it, it added an extra layer of kind of melancholy to that uh, movie that it didn't even have before, so it may even be more uh, affecting now. So if you're a James Gandolfini fan, that is one that you might want to take a look at. We're very happy to have Shutterstock.com back as a sponsor for this episode of Film Spotting SVU. At Shutterstock.com, you can find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for a website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project. You can choose from over a million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. And they have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in high definition. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips, and many contributors are professional filmmakers. Shutterstock reviews each video individually for content and quality before adding it to its library. And Shutterstock adds 12,000 video clips each week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy. Shutterstock has sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor name, and more. And as you find the assets you're looking for, you can save them to a clip box and then access your selections anytime and share them with other team members. Shutterstock has flexible pricing and you can choose between individual clips or video packs and you can download clips in HD or save with standard definition or web formats. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. You just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code SVU1113, and new accounts will receive 25% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 25% off new accounts, use offer code SVU1113. We thank Shutterstock for their support.
right, our topic on cue shots this week is end of the world movies, apocalyptic movies. This can cover a lot of ground because you can kind of have, uh, there's almost like pre-apocalyptic movies, actually apocalyptic movies, post-apocalyptic movies. Uh, how are we defining this, Allison? And do you have a do you have like a favorite of the, of that bunch? Do you have a pre- preference? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess I would say I like I like post apocalyptic movies. I do tend to right. I, I think well, you're a nihilist. I am a nihilist, and you know, and you also hate everything. So uh, yeah. I feel like I'm a miserable person. Yeah. So what, what's your preference? Burn it all of, down, yeah. I say. <laughs> In terms of in terms of world destruction, what's your preference? I don't know. It's not honestly one of my favorite genres, although there are certainly some like great movies that have been made in all three of those areas. It's not one that I generally like get excited for or seek out, as much as I am a horrible, miserable person. <laughs> I don't always enjoy seeing, you know, the world destroyed. destroyed. You don't yeah. get some kind of uh, you know visceral yeah, it's a escapist thrill. Yeah, you're like, thank God. No, I'm too that. much of an anxiety ridden nebbish, so it makes me nervous. Like yeah. what if the Mayans were right? Maybe this will happen. Maybe John Cusack will have to drive his limousine away from the increasing <laughs> earthquake well it's certainly it is a very cinematic uh especially now Absolutely. that we've been able to realize it, it a lot of gets these, more cinematic more and more as yeah. we go along there's something like i am legend you know like the beginning the, the sequence of the movie in the beginning where you just see will smith's character's life in empty new york yeah is incredible really like there it is amazingly realized and that's available for rent or even something like Zombieland. You know, there's this weird kind of giddiness to being like, oh, almost everyone's gone right. and the world is my oyster in a depressing, empty way. Right. You know, there's something to that. I actually looked, I was curious to see how far back we, we've been kind of making movies about the end of the world. Right. There's actually, um, it was recently restored by the Danish Film Institute and put on DVD in 2006. I found a copy on YouTube, but I don't think it's a legitimate copy. But if you're curious, you can at least take a peek. It was a Danish movie called The End of the World from 1916, almost wow. 100 years wow. ago. They, they were making films. It was about a cat- catastrophe following an errant comet passing by Earth oh, and that uh, old causing gem. trouble. So, you know, even even back in like very early days of cinema, right. we were making silent films in which the world's potentially would end and then a little farther back there was like the bible i guess i don't know yeah people have mentioned that to me once or twice i've heard of it yeah vaguely but that's not a movie <laughs> no i mean the one thing i will say is there there is i mean like uh, even of this past summer i i would say the two films that i liked the most uh in a summer i found somewhat alienating in in terms of a lot of the the big blockbusters were both about the world ending but in as they related to male friendships right this is the end and the world's end right and I, I enjoyed those both a lot. But uh, I, I did too, actually. And there's something to be said for, now that we've seen so many movies about the world ending, the way the world ending r- works as a metaphor or kind of this backdrop for a much more personal drama. Yes. Is, there's something kind of entertaining about that. Well, I think that, and that's something that's maybe not the humorous angle, but that is something that's definitely been done before. I know like a couple of my picks definitely have that. And that's something that I think I don't like in some of the bigger apocalyptic movies is that it is all spectacle and, and ciphers and just characters who are plopped down the, not even characters, stereotypes, you know, the hero, you know, and then a couple of different uh, ethnicities they throw in. And then, you know, there's always, you know, the guy with the dog <laughs> so the dog can survive because God forbid a dog dies. Uh, I don't know. They just there's no like personal connection. It's all about 
just the spectacle and a lot of the and the less good ones. I think the more interesting ones, like the ones you mentioned from this summer, and I like both those movies. They use it as a backdrop to be about something else. Like, you know, like This Is the End was really about friendship. And actually, The World's End was too. I mean, it was about these guys who had sort of like broken up as friends and and sort of like reconnecting after this long time. And there was a lot going on in The World's End. I think that's an amazing movie. But uh, yeah, I, that's that's to me what's missing in a lot of the bad ones. And what is present in a lot of the good ones is that personal element, those interesting characters. I like to see that that apocalypse reflected in some sort of person and seeing how it personally affects them. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that though that will always last longer than than the ones that are just spectacle well sure because spectacle because, ages very that's right quickly. and there's always someone trying to outdo the last spectacle so you know 2018 coming soon yes. this time john cusack drives a bus <laughs> away from molten lava sold let's call a uh, call the studio here's 700 million dollars <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our picks. So All right. What's your first one? My first one actually really kind of fits with what I was saying, which is good because I didn't want to sound like a hypocrite. It, it actually is one of the smallest scale movies that I think you could ever describe as apocalyptic. It's more apocalyptic of mood and also almost like metaphorical in that it's almost like a personal apocalypse. Uh, but the director... John Carpenter specifically calls it part of his Apocalypse trilogy, and it definitely has strong overtones of the end of the world. It's just it tends to happen more kind of off screen. There's a lot of references to it, and it's more about the vibe of of gloom and doom, which I can definitely relate to. The movie is called In the Mouth of Madness. It's from 1994. Again, it's directed by John Carpenter, and it's available now for streaming on Amazon Prime. And yeah, it's not like 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow. This is not a Roland Emmerich-style disaster movie. Uh, it's mostly this character study about this guy, played by Sam Neill. He's an insurance investigator. He's been hired by a book publisher to track down Sutter Kane, who is like the most popular horror novelist in the world. And he's gone missing right as he was about to finish his next novel, which is called In the Mouth of Madness. And his novels have some kind of vague maddening effect on readers they can drive people crazy so it's not a huge leap to guess what happens next in the course of his investigation sam neill's character reads the books and then the lines between reality and dreams and nightmares and fantasy all begin to break down and eventually and i don't think this is really a spoiler you know sutter kane appears himself in the movie and he's kind of like a godlike figure he can he's almost he says that everything he writes is true and everything he writes in this book is actually happening in reality and it's almost you're not it's not entirely clear whether he's like a reporter like recording events or if he's like a some sort of weird prophet who can will things into happening but either way it's very creepy and disturbing it's kind of like a, a combination of adaptation and videodrome <laughs> uh if you combine those two movies and added a lot of really creepy prosthetic horror effects and Lovecraftian monsters, you would wind up with something like In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, it's not one of my favorite John Carpenter movies. I'd actually never seen it before, but the movie has been coming up a little bit recently. I, it had a screening recently at, at BAM here in Brooklyn as like a overlooked kind of a thing. And so it was sort of, sort of on my radar, and then when I saw it was available, I decided, oh, this would be a good chance to check it out. And I enjoyed it. It is really creepy and disturbing. And again, what I like about it is that the end of the world is sort of happening off frame. Like, it's not like asteroids and tidal waves. It's like these books are maybe 
driving people crazy. It's almost like this virus of madness that's spreading throughout the world. Or maybe it has nothing to do with that, and it's just the world is essentially breaking down. And there is this idea that I think people can kind of relate to or get into and or at least get unsettled by. I certainly can. It's just this idea that maybe the world is like already over and we don't realize it yet. And everything is just kind of getting worse and worse and worse. And it's only a matter of time. And there's a lot of lines by Sam Neill's character, who is kind of a nihilist, about talking about how he doesn't actually care if the world ends or he wouldn't be surprised or all that disappointed. Every species can smell its own extinction. The last one's left won't have a pretty time of it. And in ten years, maybe less, human race will just be a bedtime story for their children. A myth. Nothing more. I, I don't want to go too long because I've already started talking about this a lot. But I had a lot of I, ideas about the movie. I think one other way to read it, Allison, and I think this might reflect on our conversation about Kaboom, is a movie about movies and the end of movies. Uh, they talk in the, in, in the film about Sutter Kane's work the way we would talk about blockbusters. He's described as a billion-dollar franchise and a tentpole for the company. So there's this like explicit cinematic language going on here. So it's almost like this idea that blockbusters are destroying the world, essentially, huh. which is kind of what I enjoyed, and, and how they're like essentially destructive. And, and, and in the movie, the publisher knows that the books are potentially damaging but does nothing to stop them because they sell so many copies so again it's like the idea that hollywood studios know they're forcing garbage down people's throats but they make a lot of money so that's what they keep making instead of interesting movies i don't know i don't think that really was there intentionally but it was something that i found there that i found quite interesting at the uh at the revival screening here in brooklyn um just recently i think it was hosted by the critic nick pinkerton who wrote a great essay about the film if you want to read more at uh the blog sundance now so if you do a search you can find it i do want to i'll just close with this one line from his essay which i thought was excellent he says what one takes away from in the mouth of madness so queer in realism so lucid in dementia is a feeling that normalcy is an anomaly waiting to be corrected which is quite a nice way of putting it and it's a it's an interesting movie again not about like the world visibly ending but this this feeling of doom that it already has we just don't realize it yet so that's in the mouth of madness and it's streaming now on amazon prime it's interesting that you bring up the idea of the kind of limited vision on the apocalypse which is something that i think has allowed especially indie films to tackle this topic in ways that can be very visceral without needing you know the giant special effects the ocean coming over the himalayas etc etc you know there's a film called first winter which is currently streaming on netflix that is basically about a bunch of brooklynites who go off for like to the country for kind of a retreat a yoga retreat and then the world something ends the world ends right? right and they're out there and it, it is basically just a drama about a group of people out there with the knowledge that, like, there's nowhere to go. Maybe society's ending kind of working on them. Yeah. Uh, or something like even It's a Disaster, which is also streaming on Netflix. I know. Another one know, that I thought about. One, uh, you that, barricade people in a house and tell them that everything's going to crap outside. Right. And, and then you, create, you see how and, they... Yeah, you see how they react. It's an instantly dramatic situation. Yeah. So my pick, uh, my first pick, which is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Sony... Is I think it combines a large scale with a very with very personal dramas in a great way. It's called Last Night, and it is a 1998 Canadian film directed by Don McKellar, who is an actor and filmmaker. And it is about the last night on Earth. It's set in Toronto. The world is ending at midnight. 
We don't know why. There's no explanation given. The only thing that seems to kind of hint at it is that the, the sun does not set. It seems to be getting brighter and brighter outside. And it's ending exactly at midnight, which is very convenient, almost like New Year's, right? Except right. that it's, it's the end instead of coming to a new year. And the film cuts between different people as they prepare for the end and kind of what they're doing. And I think what makes it work so well, really, is that it, it does such a good job of dealing with all of the very plausible things you might do if having been having known for a while that the world was ending, you were now counting down to those last days. And so you have uh, Sandra O oh playing a character who is just trying to get back to her husband, David Cronenberg for, <laughs> this is a very Canadian film for one uh -huh. last dinner. And then they have these plans for what they're going to do. Next. And then we have, you have a uh, Sarah Polly playing the, the sister of, um, of Don McKellar, who is one of the main characters, and they, they, what she and her boyfriend end up doing. But first, they're all, there's a family gathering uh, where her, their, their parents, uh, their mother especially, has it be Christmas, even though it's not Christmas. Because, of course, why wouldn't you want to spend your last day as Christmas? And so they carve up roast. She makes like a huge amount of food and gives everyone presents that are just things from their childhood from the attic. There's one guy who is just having this marathon of sex just with all kinds of different people coming in and out of his apartment. And it is an incredibly, um, it's an incredibly emotionally kind of warm movie given the subject matter mm -hmm. and given uh, the ways in which not always nice things are happening in the street, including there's violence, there's partying, there's looting, you know, it's the end of the world. Not everyone is going to react in like going home nicely and, and wanting to right. quietly spend time with their loved ones. And, uh, you know, the kind of central story is the character played by Don McKellar, who uh, has had this kind of tragedy involving his, his wife his, has vowed to spend his last night by himself. And it's about how that does not happen. And it ends in this wonderful way that uses the song Guantanamera in really effect as a really effective music cue. But I think that this film, uh, which was, you know, it's, it, it is a small film. Uh, a lot of Canadian films don't get much of a release in the US, but it does a much better job of doing what the bigger budget, starrier, seeking a friend for the end of the world attempted to do. Oh God, that movie. Yeah, exactly. And it, it just does, I feel like it does everything it, it's so much better and did it so much better, like, you know. A while before. A while before. Yeah, I'm 100% I'm with you. Yeah, and uh, it, it just, in finding an emotional reality in this kind of somewhat ridiculous in this ridiculous kind of idea and this ridiculous setup, it really, I think, just manages to flesh out these characters really well and have a lot of very unexpected scenes between them. So, juice. Oh, perfect. Mm, tropical punch. You treat me so well. Well, you get one every day at around now, if I'm not mistaken. I thought I'd try it myself. I thought you never noticed. Uh, no. But I did. Hmm. <laughs> So, how goes the battle? Fine. Good. Good old computer. Mm. Well, imagine, even ten years ago, we'd have had to have eight or nine stations just to keep the system running. I know. But now? Now. Just you? And you. Oh, and I. I'm almost done. So uh, it's it's a movie that manages to uh, 
create this sense of what this of a city going into chaos as the world is ending and also very like very personal moments it's pretty great and if you haven't ever had a chance to look at it which you might not have it's not a particularly well-known film though it's definitely got a uh, following it is available for rent on all of those places amazon itunes google youtube and sony and i highly recommend it it's last night okay that's a great pick my next pick is a movie that is a previous version of something that you already mentioned, Allison, which is I Am Legend. And the film is called The Omega Man from 1971, directed by Boris Segal. That's available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. And in this particular version of I Am Legend, which is originally the novel by Richard Matheson, you have Charlton Heston as Robert Neville. He's an army scientist. He's the last healthy survivor, seemingly on the entire planet, but at least in the city of Los Angeles, of this biological war between China and the Soviet Union. And he spends his days wandering around the city, going to the movies, getting supplies, fortifying his compound, uh, trying not to go crazy. And then at night, he does what any of us would do in this situation. He fights off a pack of albino vampires known as the Family. They're led by uh, Anthony Zerbe's Matthias. And eventually he does discover a few more survivors, and then it becomes sort of a battle between the two groups. For our original recipe listeners of uh, Film Spotting, The Omega Man was reviewed there way back on episode number 208. And that was when uh, Adam and then co-host Medi Ballgame each gave the film 2.5 stars out of 5. So they weren't huge fans. I would give it more like a 3.5. The movie, it kind of – have you ever seen it, Allison? Oh, a long time ago. Yeah, not in a long time. I mean, I just saw it recently for the first time, actually. It kind of devolves in the, in the second half. It becomes really violent and bloody. Uh, I'm not really crazy about the, the the second half of the movie, which really does become just kind of like this shoot 'em up between gun nut Charlton Heston. Crazy to believe, but he's got <laughs> a lot of guns in that house of his, and and the vampires or the whatever they are, the family. There's this battle between the two of them, and I'm not crazy about that stuff as much. But the first part of the movie, which is what you were describing, that was so great about I Am Legend, which is Will Smith alone in New York City. This one is is Charlton Heston alone in Los Angeles, and I love those scenes. They are just so powerful for the same reason. You know, I mean, this is this is predating not only that movie, but movies like Twenty Eight Days Later and Vanilla Sky. The image of like a one person wandering through a completely depopulated city. There is something about that that is really, really powerful and visceral. That sight. You know, it's just so jarring and out of place that it really does upset you. And in this case, there's these great scenes where, you know, because he's the only one, he's got nothing to do. This, like, regular stop on his wandering tour of Los Angeles is to go to a movie theater. <laughs> and the only movie they have to play is Woodstock. So he pl- the documentary of Woodstock. So he plays Woodstock. He puts it on and sits in the audience by himself and says every line, recites every line word for word. <laughs> And it is such an amazing scene, and it's, you know, it's just a perfect kind of image for, you know, a guy trying to cling to the civilization that's gone, you know, just desperately trying to hold on to whatever is left. And then the fact that it's Woodstock is, of course, such a brilliant choice because Woodstock is this vision of this hopeful, hippie society where everyone is together and free love and we're all going to get along and peace, man. And, of course, now it's uh, a few years after that, and the world is, is destroyed in biological warfare, and Charles Heston is the only one left, and he's fighting albino vampires. It's such a brilliant – of all the movies they could have put in that theater, it's such a perfect choice. 
you know how the book ends, right? The realization he I has. do know. I don't want to spoil it I don't it want to either. But it's, it, I feel like that's one of the reasons that the endings... Are problematic. Are, are of at least those two adaptations yeah. are problematic is because the book does not have a Hollywood ending. Right. And, the, and movie that, the movies try to, to some degree. They're not to find, exact- or to find something. Yes. And that search, I think, makes it a little. Uh, yeah. They're still downers. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm not gonna like if you go see the Omega Man if you rent it. Just you know, don't go in expecting sunshine and rainbows and the world is saved. Uh, but I would say what they do is they don't necessarily they still they still like sort of have a hopeful message for humanity. Right. As like as like a humanity is gonna make it kind of a thing. Yes. And the the books might not necessarily say that and may not want to say that. Like the message may be totally different. It's kind of that's more similar to like in the mouth of madness, I would say. And this is just a little bit more hopeful, but still pretty bleak. And and yeah, I just I love those first scenes so much. I think they're just just about perfect and a nice, nice uh, snapshot. So that's what I'm recommending it on the basis of. That's the Omega Man. And it's available now to rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play and YouTube. Okay, my second pick is one of those The World is Going to End uh, movies. It is streaming on Hulu Plus, and it is The Last Wave, the 1977 Australian film, directed by Peter Weir, um, often gets uh, paired with his Picnic at Hanging Rock, as they're both these kind of films that have mysticism and this uh, uncertainty in terms of interpretation to them. Mm -hmm. And in this case... This film stars Richard Chamberlain as David Burton, who is a tax attorney and married with kids. It's this very nice, stable life. He takes up a legal aid case, even though he doesn't really have a lot of background in doing defense attorney work, in order to represent these four Aboriginal men who are accused of murdering one of their own. And he has a particular connection to one of the men, Chris Lee, who's played by David Gulpilil, who's, you know, the most famous Aboriginal actor out there and he senses that there's something they're not telling him about both what happened in terms of the death of this man and also he's been having these visions himself that he doesn't really understand but that seem to be connected to to the case or to the men or to something that's going to happen in the world he keeps seeing water like water coming out of his car radio he he sees people the streets filled with water flooded and people just floating in them he has these portents of doom but doesn't really understand if they're real or not or mm-hmm. how they're connected to aboriginal culture and to these to chris lee in particular and to the shaman perhaps they're tribal aborigines Don says there aren't any tribal people in the city. Maybe he's wrong. Darling, he works for these people. Well, I beg to bed. You come too. No. I must do some more work. That's not the real reason, is it? You worried you won't be able to sleep. And it's a, it's got a lot of dream logic to it, the movie. But at the same time, it's about this very, very mundane thing, right? A, a, a murder, a trial, a case, a legal case. And I think what the film does that's very, very unusual is that it starts off as being this kind of mystic look at, you know, maybe tribal culture, Aboriginal tribal culture that then starts to suggest rather than 
than it being this remnant that has largely been kind of obliterated by, you know, the arrival of uh, colonists and then the, you know, Australian kind of Australia as it now is. Uh, it, it suggests that actually there's so much more there and it's so much more ingrained into the, the country than any of these relative newcomers know. You know, there's a, a point where you see this discovery of like caves underneath the city that are that are, you know, significant and that are, are part of this culture that other people seem to assume has been like obliterated for anyone who's living in the city. There's an argument going on about being like you can't be a tribal, a tribal Aboriginal and live in the city. If you live in the city, all you are is just like, you know, culturally identical to anyone else who's uh, just an Australian. And it it builds to this really strange place. I, I would say the uh, a film, a more recent film that it, it makes sense to compare it to would be Take Shelter. That's which, what I haven't seen this movie, but yes. as you're describing it, I'm like, this sounds a lot like Take a lot. Shelter. Yeah, it is. Which I, I love. Which I love too. It's not available for streaming, unfortunately, yeah. but it is a great film and worth checking out if you haven't seen it. It, it certainly, I think, forms the, like, was an inspiration it for Take Shelter. Like it for sure. And it, it ends similarly in this really enigmatic image mm-hmm. that you just have no idea what to do with it. it but, uh, you know, this film, as much as it is a film about the world possibly ending, about uh, signs that this thing is going to happen that, you know, this guy can't really convince anyone else of. It's also about, you know, Australian identity, about this country that has, you know, uh, a relatively new culture built on this older culture that they say at one point in the film, someone points out was probably, they say was there for 50,000 years before. And, uh, and about kind of the relationship between, you know, white Australians and Aboriginals and just about preserving culture. So it's a really unusual difficult to describe a movie but it's a it's kind of a great one uh and it is available for streaming on hulu plus it is the last wave Now it's listener's choice time on SVU with a twist. Typically, we pick three options and we let you, the listeners, vote for what we review. And last time we did it a little different. We had a contest and we randomly picked someone who left us a review on iTunes. And that random winner got to choose the movie that we reviewed, which is what we're about to talk about. The winner of the contest was uh, iTunes user Sturgidson. His real name is Aaron. And he chose the 2010 film Kaboom. And we asked Aaron uh, to give us a little explanation why, uh, out of all movies, at least in print, digitally, the world was his oyster, and he chose Kaboom. So we wanted to know why, and this is what he had to say. He says, I chose Kaboom primarily because I wish to revisit it with several films I've recently watched in mind. It's a wild, sex-fueled fever dream of a film that did not achieve much notoriety in its release and seems to me to deserve a second look. 
the choice emerged from recent viewings and discussions of recent films that seemingly normalize homo and heterosexuality in mainstream discussion. Mysterious Skin, uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, reviewed on Film Spotting Parental Unit last week. I haven't heard it called that before, <laughs> and I approve. Uh, you have Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity and also Alfonso Cuaron's uh, previous film, E2 Mama Tambien. And, of course, Brokeback Mountain, which perhaps has done more to legitimize homosexual love than any other movie in the U.S. cultural marketplace. And Aaron goes on. Kaboom feels a bit like an anomaly in representing sex and the tenuous delineations between hetero, homo, and bisexuality. It rejects sincerity in every frame. It is daffy, light, spaced out, frivolous, and heavy-handed in that effort. On rewatching it this week, after I selected it, the movie that most comes to mind is Repo Man, another film that fully rejects the importance of sincerity. But it also is about youth and doom and seems connected to me to Spring Breakers, Tank Girl, and Donnie Darko as much or more than any of the other films I've mentioned. It's interested in throwaway bombast and fun and pop as much as the sincerity of those other films. So that was, those were Aaron's very uh, thoughtful comments. He's, he put a lot of thought into this. It took him a few days to decide, and he made it seriously, this decision. So the film, Allison Kaboom, stars Thomas Decker of, I guess, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Have you ever watched that show? I, I have, but I don't remember anything about it. I never them. watched it. It didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger, so as far so as I'm concerned, like, it doesn't exist. That's yeah. me. I think he played John Connor in the Sarah yeah, Connor Chronicles. I, think you, I believe you are right. Yeah, here he stars as Smith. He's a bisexual college freshman acclimating to life away from home, and his life, as Aaron mentioned, is consumed with sex, talking about it with his best friend Stella, played by Haley Bennett, and having it with both women, like Juno Temple, who plays a, a free-spirited young woman named London, and men, like the guy he meets at a local nude beach. Allison, I went to Syracuse. There were not a lot of nude beaches up in Syracuse. <laughs> what about Yale? There's a lot of nude beaches by Yale. It's a little chilly. Yeah. You probably say the same for uh, I think we for went Syracuse. to the wrong schools. I, I think, yeah. It, I have to say, like, this makes college look very appealing. A lot more fun than <laughs> mine was. Hey! Anyway, yes. the film continues like this. Lots of romantic and sexual intrigue until all of a sudden the atmosphere starts to fill with dread. In a shadowy conspiracy involving Smith, dudes in your next style animal masks and telepathic powers start to emerge. So let's get into it, Allison. We've got an interesting movie here. Thanks to Aaron. Thank you again for uh, picking Aaron. And there's a lot of to chew on here. Uh, it is a film we had both seen before yes. and enjoyed, but probably I don't think we've seen it since then. And it, Aaron's right. It did not get a lot of attention uh, back in 2010. Did it remind you, Allison, of any of those movies he mentioned? He threw a lot of names out there. Did it remind you of any of those movies? Did it remind you of any other movies? Or is it just in its own unique world of crazy sexual apocalypse. It, I mean, it reminded me of a Gregor Rocky movie, really. I feel uh. like he's kind of, he's kind of stands alone in that way. And I'm not actually a huge fan of some of Iraqi's earlier films, especially the ones that put him on a map as a 90s indie filmmaker, like, you know, The Living End or Doom Generation or Nowhere. And I think he kind of got more serious critical attention with Mysterious Skin and then we were both a big fan of Smiley Face, which was a bit kind of in another direction as well as a stoner comedy. This does feel like a return to those earlier films, but with so much more of a sense of warmth and less of a sense of confrontation, mm. I would say it is a film that is incredibly, it is incredibly open and kind of, I don't know, generous in its portrayals of sex and sexuality, you know, while also bringing this world that is 
like a kind of I don't know, like an R-rated like teen drama or teen tv show right a soap opera oh, more than r in some cases <laughs> yes. maybe uh but you know in which everyone is kind of beautiful and um stylish and apparently omnisexual what was that tv show on mtv that was all about characters in college hooking up oh god i'm not pretending not to know it i really don't know i really it. don't know it either, but you know, I know exactly what you're talking about yeah, it of is kind of like that yes it's sort of like the much better much more interesting version of that. Right. I'll that, look it up while yeah, you're still yeah. talking. In that, like, every time, every character in his life is someone that the main character both, like, kind of is takes as a possible friend, but also considers for sex, you know, in a way that's not, that doesn't seem sleazy, really. It's just that, like, every, po- every person that he encounters seems to be a potential sex partner. And then also maybe a friend or maybe a love interest. There's a weird sweetness to it, even as it is a film about many, sometimes graphic sexual encounters. Undressed. Undressed. Was the show. Yes. Apparently executive produced and created by Roland Joffe. Fantastic. Yeah. Did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Did either. not know that. Uh, anyway. Yeah. But it does kind of feel like that show. It does. I'm bit. sorry yeah. to interrupt. But no, I mean, I think that that's the, like, the sweetness, the kind of underlying sweetness to it is something that really is unusual and... Very charming. And very charming. Yeah. It, it's not the kind of thing that you expect to see in combination with a film that's that this sexually frank. Mm. Um, what did you think? I mean, you. I know you liked this film the first I time did. you saw it. Uh, does it hold up? I thought it, for the most part it did. I enjoyed watching it again. Uh, it's a funny movie. has some really likable characters. You know, and maybe another reason to compare it to TV is that it feels like these characters could have had a life beyond this one movie. I would have been happy to see some of these characters again and again and again. Maybe the end of the movie doesn't necessarily offer the opportunity for that. But in an alternate universe, I wouldn't have minded it. I'm not sure watching it this time how much I liked the conspiracy element of it. Having you know, knowing now where it was going when I was watching it through this time, as the movie kind of, I don't know, there are elements in the early parts of the film that sort of introduce this idea of of dread, this this uh, apocalyptic nature, just a little bit, including the fact that you know Smith is a film studies major. And he talks about how it's such an anachronistic major because who knows there may not even be any film in a few years. It may be completely destroyed. Uh, that the, it may not even exist as we know it or something like that. And I think that is sort of what I was getting at earlier when we were talking about In the Mouth of Madness. This idea that like movies are ending. This is the end of the world for movies anyway. And so there is this sort of like foreboding or doom. And in this case, it would be maybe the end of like indie movies maybe or like the freedom to make this little kind of movie. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. But uh, that, that I think that's sort of embedded into the narrative a little bit. But as it gets kind of crazy, watching it again, what kind of turned me off to the last couple of scenes, although I think the final scene is fantastic, the scenes leading up to it, there's a lot of info dump exposition. There's a lot of characters in cars saying, who are you? Why did you do this? Who am I? What happened? What's going on now? And, and, the, and then people answering those questions with long kind of like you're just sitting there like it's like word soup you're trying to like listen really closely so you can understand it all and maybe you're not supposed to understand it all and it it, part of the point is that it's this strange thing beyond our comprehension but it's a lot of and i get it this is a tiny budget movie they probably couldn't afford to show any of that and i can respect that 
but I think the movie is much better when it sticks to its means in having lots of attractive people having sex with each other in these sort of very charming, amusing ways than it is like creating this enormous mythos that it doesn't really nail. Yeah, no, and that takes place almost entirely in the last 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, it basically... It piles up. It almost is like the film invents its entire mythology right at the end and then ends with it. Yeah. it. It doesn't necessarily, which I don't, I don't know that that really, in the end, like looking at it as a whole, the mythology part is not really so essential. Right. I do kind of wonder, you mentioned it being maybe a stand-in for the end of indie movies, but I feel like it might also work as, as to be like the drama, just the, to speak to the inherent drama of being 18 or 19. You know, mm. at some point, I think one of the characters says, you know, Smith, it's college. It's something you do in between. At least it's not, you it's know, the end of gap. the world. Right. Yeah. And, but there is something to be said for the ways in which, you know, your, the, your swings of emotion at that time can make things feel like right. everything is this huge deal. Yes. You know, you're always like, oh my God, like, I, you know, the world might as well be ending. I, I think that the ways in which this, in, in which the movie incorporates its touches of magic, uh, can sometimes work really well as metaphors for these personal dramas, particularly the breakup between Haley Bennett's character Stella and uh, this character named Lorelai, played by Roxanne Mesquita, right. the French actress, clingy. Yes, where she basically girlfriend who won't right. let her go, and they have like the hook. They have this hookup, and they date, and then it goes sour, and then she tries to pull away, and then this character happens to be a witch. Right, which she, she has, has told, like mind powers. Yeah, matter of factly, has explained to her. Yeah, <laughs> but it becomes kind of a nice weird metaphor well, for just this idea of like someone who you know is bad for you having some sort of like psychosexual hold on you where you can't stay away from them exactly you know they're bad for you but you're just drawn to them and it's such a brilliant it works a lot better as like a metaphor yes than it does like when they try to actually like incorporate it into this larger story yeah but yeah those scenes are great they're, yeah, they're super totally funny great. and and just yeah they're smart and just the kind of episodic nature of it of the movie in general i i think lends to scenes that are that just as a standalone moment are really sweet. Like just a lot of the, and are just really lovable. Like a lot of the conversations between Smith and Stella are great. You know, uh, a lot of the interactions between Smith and his roommate, Thor, who is like, uh, I think at one point they say the gayest straight guy ever. (laughs) Like every, like there's, there's a scene where he's, wrestling with his best friend and they're calling yeah. each other gay slurs while yes. like in their underwear tussling around yeah i think is, it's pretty is great pretty great yeah yeah, yeah. and that you know there are a lot of those scenes that don't particularly have anything in fact most of the movie has nothing to do with the plot the so-called plot that unfolds right I, and those are really the best part yeah the observational stuff uh, i think iraqi really nails like you said some of these uh, surely built out of his own observations of like you know you know, extremely gay, straight men, you know, he seems to really nail some of these weird, I don't know what like else to call bro, them. Like the yeah, bro type. bro rituals act, yeah. or bro activities. He really nails. And the guy who plays Thor is great. He gives a great performance. Actually, all the all the performances across the board are great. And I agree with you. It, it works best as just sort of this, you know, kind of low-key observational uh, comedy about, you know, being... 18, 19, and, and feeling like these huge uh, life changes are, you know, is the end of the world. I wonder why, I mean, wh- I'm trying to think of what what was the reason he, dis- what was his motivation for adding 
this wild conspiracy and then this ending which is really apocalyptic like what when you have this really small lovely material what was what do you think how, put yourself in his shoes Allison why do you think he you know almost like grafted as you said like out of nowhere practically there's a couple of you know like there's the stuff with the girl who he you know like accidentally another great scene is like Smith accidentally gets drugged and then on his way home from a hookup he meets this woman, and then she's attacked. But it might all be a vision, but maybe it's not. So that's another one of the little like clues or the hints that something larger is going on. But otherwise, it's it's not like that. So why why would he add it? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's something that he's done in movies before. In Nowhere, there's this whole kind of alien invasion type uh, storyline undercurrent under a lot of otherwise like just teen drugged out hijinks and hookup hijinks i i think it's just something he likes to do i'm not really sure I, where it comes from and I, in this case i don't know i mean I, I feel like it does give it this stranger edge but it does also feel like maybe he wasn't sure where the movie there's always a messiness to his movies there's a messiness right. to this movie right you know their storylines introduced the character for the mother is almost it's not really necessary even except that She connects back to the conspiracy and right and allows an explanation basically but you know i I think that sometimes he just likes to have that touch of the magic or the surreal or just the kind of destructive yeah and throws it in there uh, which is an interesting impulse for someone who seems to make especially in this case seems to have made a movie that is just to have his vision of like a really kind of idealized world out there and then to you know possibly destroy it at the end looking back at aaron's list of movies that that this reminded him of and trying to find these connections to talk about what he wanted to hear from us uh, i'm not really seeing i mean the movie that it kind of reminded me a lot of in some ways was like southland tales he mentioned yes, Donnie Darko, absolutely yeah but the movie i get much more of southland tales that sort of you know not only because it's apocalyptic but just kind of sort of wild and strange and like different tones coming yeah, in different tones yeah. cr- crashing together seemingly out out of nowhere and without much setup or warning. Uh, that was what I got. In terms of the blue is the warmest color thing, uh, it is interesting because that movie has gotten so much of attention for being about, you know, explicit lesbian sex. And this movie has lesbians, it has gay sex, it has three ways. And it, I think it's the same distributors, right? Both times? I mean, was Kaboom an IFC Films movie? We'll have to check on that. But, I mean, it's the same sort of level of release, roughly. And and blue is, is the warmest color. It's gotten so much attention, notoriety, controversy. And Kaboom really did kind of come and go very quietly. And I'm trying to try to piece together why that is. I mean, I don't think that this is quite as good a movie as uh, as blue is the warmest color. But in terms of, like, sexual explicitness, it's probably almost as explicit. I mean... It's not as graphic in terms of the nudity, and the sex scenes aren't as long, but it's it's got a lot Maybe more... Maybe we're just jaded. I mean, I wonder if that's part of the reason, is that it's not, you know, the idea of... For a long time, independent film, like, was a place where you would go to see just, like, like uh, boundary-pushing material in terms of content, right, right? Right, And it was the home for that, where kind of mainstream films... You know, we're not. They would not touch that material. But no, I they're feel more like, your pot-smoking-dog type movies. Exactly. Um, and... and I feel like now there are so many independent films, even this was released three years ago. uh, The ideas of the type of content it has were not shocking enough 
to attract that much attention, you know? So it should have pushed the envelope even further. Or the I, way that uh, Blue is Orange Color, like, 10 minute sex scene. That's what we need. 10 minutes, exactly. With a lot more nudity. Well, even, I mean, it is in line with a lot of the past films that Greg Araki made. And those did sometimes get attention for yeah. boundary pushing material. That's true. If this feels like that in itself is not is a t- is not a hook as much as it used to be. I think also in this movie it's pretty clear that it's all simulated sex and even though they've said that all the sex in Blue's Lormous Color was also simulated there is there's some shots that certainly kind of blur the line between what is simulated and what is not and there's you know like and they've had to talk, they've talked on, in interviews about wearing like prosthetic uh, genitals and stuff so clearly i mean it that gives you a sense that it was it was maybe still a little bit more graphic right well and i think also uh, you know i think blue is the warmest color hits this perfect sweet spot for people between like an intellectual film it's this you know can award-winning film uh from this you know well-known international director and also this racy movie that has a seven minute sex scene or whatever you know right. it, it's you can you can go to see it People under can either claim, way. Yes. Yeah, they can claim that they're interested in art, mm-hmm. or they can claim they're interested in in lesbians having sex. Yeah, this movie and this movie also. I mean, Kaboom is sort of it, it doesn't aspire to that level of art or whatever. Weightiness, I mean, it, yeah, yeah, it's eighty minutes long. It's almost it's like half as long as Blue is the Warmest Color. It, it's it's a comedy. It's, it's incredibly light. Yeah. It's very light, so it doesn't have that weightiness that perhaps makes. You know, maybe Blue is the Warmest Color, it's like the idea is like, well, this is an important movie. And that's why these sex scenes are... You Necessary? Know, yes, mm. exactly, exactly. It's not just frivolous. Whereas Kaboom's whole appeal is the, fr- the, the frivolity of it. That it's like sort of embracing all of this kind of wild uh, sex that all the characters are having and not being judgmental about it. Which is, I think, maybe that's part of the appeal. I don't know. I'm not sure if we answered Aaron's question but I hope we got at a little bit of it. I hope the conversation was interesting, at least. It was certainly fun to revisit the movie. I it enjoyed was, it. yeah. And uh, I definitely agree 100% with him that the movie is not very well known, definitely overlooked. And if you haven't seen it, and if what we've described sounds interesting, you should check it out. It's Kaboom. It's a streaming now on Netflix. All right, let's wrap things up with our Behind the Eight Ball segment, where we recommend three new titles to streaming and we give you two listener recommendations, which, of course, you can always email to us at svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then we give you one random film from our, what's it called, Allison? My list. My list. I wanted to hear if Allison would say it. And she did. Of course. I've been getting a lot of people on Twitter telling me that they want a, they want a ringtone. <laughs> they can't look at Netflix without hearing <laughs> my list. What have you done? I, what have you done? I don't know. I don't even remember how it started now. I've no. already forgotten. But it's sweeping the nation. It's sweeping the globe. I'm pretty sure Netflix is going to come and sue me pretty soon to stop me from saying it. Or give me a job so that every time someone clicks on my list on their Netflix page, it's going to say my list. Because it's, it's the only possible uh, conclusion. Those two are the only two that could happen. All right. Allison, are you ready to begin? I am ready. All right. Let's start with three new releases. Okay. First up, we have Francis Ha, which is new to Netflix. This is the latest film from Noah Baumbach, starring Greta Gerwig as Francis, a 27-year-old would-be dancer who gets a terrifying glimpse of the end of her 20s in various developments in her life, uh, including the fact that mainly that her best friend Sophie, played by Mickey Sumner, kind of moves on, moves out of their apartment and in with her boyfriend, and the two no longer have similar lives as they used to describe them and 
Frances finds herself having to make her own way and figure out what is next and how she is going to survive on the small amount of money she makes and also what's next for her professionally since being a dancer doesn't seem to be working out. And it's an extremely charming, well-received movie uh, and, you know, a kind of step up for Greta Gerwig, who is, whose career has really only been kind of going up and up. So that is newly streaming on Netflix, Frances Ha. New to Hulu and also streaming on Amazon. Speaking of Canadian films now, I'm apparently repping them. Uh, Ginger Snaps, which is a 2000 werewolf film directed by John Fawcett, who is also the co-creator of Orphan Black, which is the BBC America drama about clones that has gotten a lot of attention this past year. Uh, this movie is about Brigitte, played by Emily Perkins, and Ginger, played by Catherine Isabel, who are two goth teenage siblings who do not fit into their suburban school and are obsessed with death. And one of them, Ginger, is uh, gets bitten by a werewolf, which starts to cause her problems, but also works really well, really nicely. I think this film manages it really well as a metaphor for puberty and the uh, the special the the film sticks with some practical special effects that don't all necessarily hold up these days, but it it's treatment of the relationship between the two sisters is really great. That's ginger snaps. It is currently streaming on Hulu. And finally, meet Marlon Brando is now streaming on Fandor. This is a 1966 Maisel's film, a short doc that premiered at the New York film festival back in 1966 and then never got a proper release until now. Um, It looks at Brando during an exercise that Matt, we both know all too well during a press day. Yes. In this case for his 1965 film, Moraturi. That must've been a wild time. uh, Yes, exactly. And it looks at Brando uh, playing nice or not so nice for the press as he does a full day of interviews. Oh, wow. This sounds great. Yeah. On behalf of the movie, it's about half an hour and just a really fantastic look at Brando, especially doing something that he clearly was not something, it's not something he was like fond of doing, which is bantering with the press. And at one point, a journalist asks him, don't you have anything to say about the film? And he replies, Bernie Wiki smokes the worst cigars I've ever known. So that is Meet Marlon Brando. It is currently streaming on Fandor. Man, I got to check that out. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Well, I picked two uh, TV recommendations from our listeners this time. The first one is from Mark, who recommends the outstanding series Offspring, which is now available on Hulu. Uh, all four seasons of it. He says that although the plot is sometimes a little bit creaky, it's a television series from Australia that grows in dramatic and comedic power as it progresses. It's not radically hard-hitting. It's from a commercial network. But the writing and acting are excellent. It balances the dramatic developments of the Proudman family with dream sequences, occasional musical numbers, and broad physical comedy. You really should check it out. So that is Offspring, now available on Hulu. And Chris, who is Cold Milk on Twitter recommends Behind the Mask on Hulu. He says that while a lot of Hulu's original series projects have felt cheap and undercooked in the past, I am really impressed with this show about the people underneath the costumes of mascots at sports games. The show follows mascots from all different walks of their careers, one being a high schooler who gets his mascot job from being the only one that signed up, to a minor league, to full-on professional NBA mascot who performs some pretty amazing stunts up on stage. 
What Behind the Mask really does well is balance out the inherently funny idea of following around professional mascots with a great deal of heart. As they show the injuries they sustain or how shy the mascot is outside of the costume, it becomes a very heartfelt portrayal of something that would normally be played solely as a joke on most TV networks. So that is uh, Behind the Mask. I also wanted to point out that series is directed by Josh Greenbaum, who also directed The Short Game, which is a documentary about competitive a competitive golf tournament for kids seven years old. Oh, and that's going to be the first. It was yeah, it was the second original doc to be picked up by Netflix. Okay, yeah, and it was a audience award winner at South by Southwest. So he is currently ruling the streaming adorable sports category is that do you know if that's streaming yet or it's they just in december acqu- okay so yes. it's coming soon it'll be the that- first it's their second acquisition but the first one that they'll be putting out and it's called uh the short game The short game okay yes. great all right how about one random film from your my list do you have me number 81 which is the red balloon this Ooh. is the 1956 film from albert lamaris about a kid who makes friends with a sentient balloon i remember being bored silly by this as a kid when it was shown to me by a very well-meaning I remember that music too. teacher yes yeah. so i put it on there to be like maybe i should give it another try well, it's someday. considered like a masterpiece a masterpiece of world but i feel like it's also something that maybe just doesn't go as well with kids as people seem to like well-meaning yes. teachers seem to think it might That's so i'm so glad you said that oh, and yes. i'm sure we're gonna get angry emails I, please, from people saying uh, send them you have you have just crapped all over one of the great <laughs> films monster. of all time but i remember being <laughs> like probably like middle school yeah. sixth grade somewhere in that neighborhood being forced to watch the red balloon going this is the most boring thing i've ever seen in my life <laughs> Well, there we go. God, it feels good to come clean. <sighs> oh, so Finally, oh, after good. all these years. Wow. All right, I can't well, believe you have it on your my list. Well, I you would... know, maybe someday I'll be feeling inclined to give it a try. No, no, I don't, I don't uh, think that's true for a second. I don't, <laughs> think that, I don't think that thing is ever coming off there. <laughs> all right. Well, it's your turn. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Three new picks. Okay. Let's start with a new film from the old master, Francis Ford Coppola. His Twixt played festivals around the world, but never really got a full theatrical release. However, it is now streaming on Netflix. I finally watched it a couple of days ago, and Allison, I really enjoyed it. Mm. It's very messy and strange, but it's very personal, and it's kind of beautiful, too, actually. Val Kilmer stars as horror novelist Sutter Kane. I'm sorry, wait, that's not right. He, uh, horror novelist Hall Baltimore. Sorry, I'm getting my <laughs> fictional horror novelist confused. He's Hall Baltimore. That's a pretty good name. It is a pretty great name. Not Hal. Hall, H-A-L-L. He is sick of being pigeonholed as this guy who writes second-rate witch novels. He arrives in a town, a small town, for a book signing, and the local sheriff, played in a great performance by Bruce Dern, offers to tell him about a local series of murders with these strong overtones of vampires. Uh, So he, he thinks this could make a good next book. Uh, some audiences hated this movie. It didn't get great reviews. Uh, could be one reason why it didn't really get a theatrical release. It played a bunch of film festivals. I think the key to enjoying it is to recognize it as basically Francis Ford Coppola doing his Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movie, right? That's Twixt. It takes that idea into the digital age. Val Kilmer is our Boris Karloff. Poe himself is in it as a character, and you have all this kind of beautiful, kind of schlocky, kind of interesting digital photography. And also, if you know anything about Coppola, it's a really personal story when you get to the end of it and find out this uh, Kilmer character's secret. Uh, it is essentially Francis Ford Coppola's secret. So I think that gives it kind of this very interesting texture. Not a masterpiece. It's not The Godfather, but I think it's worth seeing. It's Twixt. 
It's on Netflix. Next up, I've got the latest film from documentarian Alex Gibney. It's called We Steal Secrets. It is about the connected and intertwined lives and fates of Julian Assange, the activist who founded the website WikiLeaks, and Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, the army private who leaked WikiLeaks, thousands of documents about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like a lot of Alex Gibney movies, it's not the most in-depth, it's, but it's, you know, it's very solid and very polished. You know, it's, it, if you like Alex Gibney's films, uh, I think you're going to like this one. I don't, I don't know if I'd say it's his best movie, but it's another solid, if not wildly exceptional documentary. I didn't know that much about WikiLeaks beyond, you know, the sort of stuff I've read, you know, like in the New York Times. So I found it pretty interesting. There's some interesting footage of Assange. And you get to see all these sort of like private text messages or IM messages that Bradley Manning was sending to people, which kind of tell his side of the story. So that's We Steal Secrets, and it is available on Netflix. And finally, available on Crackle, is The Last Picture Show. Peter Bogdanovich's breakthrough film from 1971 about life in a small Texas town in the early 1950s. It is a beautiful, sad movie, a great cast with Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottom, Sybil Shepard, Ellen Burstyn, and Cloris Leachman, who won an Oscar for the film. Ben Johnson is also in it. He also won an Oscar. He plays uh, Sam the Lion, who runs the town's movie theater, which is going to close. Hmm, movie theaters closing as America changes forever. Nope, this movie has no resonance in no way whatsoever in 2013. But uh, you should probably watch it anyway. It's a great, great movie from the new Hollywood era. That's The Last Picture Show. It is available on Crackle. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, first up, a recommendation from Charlie Frisbee, which I don't know if that's his real name or a, a pseudonym, but if it's a real name, it's a fabulous real name. He recommends Death Becomes Her on Netflix. He says Robert Zemeckis' inconsequential comedy romp is a lot of fun on a late night I have no idea why this film hasn't been broken into about a hundred different comedic animated gifs. Bruce Willis goes all in with his zany character, and that's why we used to love him. It's a good point. Having seen, haven't not seen it in a while, but having memories of watching this movie, there is a lot of gifable material in Death Becomes Her. Maybe it's just not that famous, not that well known. It's not it like Ghostbusters. Have, I mean, it has these two major actresses in it, though. Right? You know, it Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn and Goldie Hawn. Yeah, and Bruce Willis. Yes. You would think it would... I mean, it's not a great movie. No, it's an incredibly it, weird movie. It is very weird yes. in a kind of a pleasant way. But there is some... I mean, maybe we shouldn't say this. Somebody is going to gift the hell out of it. But anyway, thank you to Charlie for his recommendation of Death Becomes Her on Netflix. And next up, I've got a recommendation from James. He says, this is available on iTunes here in Canada. I assume it can be easily found online in the U.S. as well. It's the 1975 adaptation of Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely, directed by Dick Richards and written by David Zella Goodman, who also wrote Straw Dogs and Logan's Run. It isn't talked about enough when we talk about neo-noir. The film stars Robert Mitchum as P.I. Philip Marlowe, who takes up a missing persons case and soon becomes embroiled in the seedy underbelly of 1940s Los Angeles. It's not a revisionist noir like uh, Robert Altman's A Long Goodbye, just released two years earlier, but a self-conscious updating of noir style with rich neons and deep shadows. It's not a masterpiece. It suffers from looking kind of cheap in comparison to other noirs of the era, but it's quite close and is definitely a film worth rediscovering. Allison, I actually just watched this movie for the first time right before we got this email um, because I did this gigantic project, which should be up by the time listeners are hearing this about Sylvester Stallone's career. He has a small role <laughs> in the movie. I was watching every single Sylvester Stallone piece. Wow. A movie. 
Yes, every single one. That, that is heroic. There was one I missed because it's not available. But I watched everything else, including his his porn movie that he made in 1970. Wow. Yeah, it's soft core, but it's still. <laughs> uh, yeah, I watched them all. And uh, this, he, he has a very small role, Stallone does. But this is actually a really good movie. I agree. It's, it's not the most handsome-looking uh, noir, but Mitchum is fantastic. He really is a great Philip Marlowe. Yeah. And Charlotte Rampling is the femme fatale. She is... She is good. And uh, a great performance, too. It's not just that she's sexy. She's really, really great in that role. And a uh, weird bit of trivia about this movie, when Robert Mitchum's character first meets... Charlotte Rampling's character, they have this dialogue exchange, and then he has this narration. You know, he narrates the whole movie as Marlowe, of course. And he narrates about, you know, she had a full set of curves. You know, her hair was the color of gold in old <laughs> paintings. This scene was ripped almost line for line and, and used in The Naked Gun. The first Naked Gun when Frank Drebin meets uh, Priscilla Presley's character, line for line. The only difference is they added she it's even the staging is the same they just added the part where Priscilla Presley falls down the stairs <laughs> but otherwise it's almost wow. identical I know I was yeah. shocked I was well, it's funny uh, you know the same book has been was adapted once before as Murder My Sweet yes. the 1944 film if you watch that it's amazing how many similarities there are to the Big Lebowski mm. including the dream sequence when he gets knocked out interesting yes. So if you're in Canada, it's available on iTunes. Allison, where is it available in the States? It's available for purchase, but for $7. So, like, That's yeah, not so On bad. Amazon and iTunes. It's a pretty great film. I, I actually really, if you're a fan of noir, if you're a fan of Marlowe, fan of Mitchum especially, because he's awesome in it. Definitely worth checking out. Farewell, my lovely. All right. One from your My List. My List. You gave me number 72. Which this time is Dead End Drive-In, which is directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith. He's one of the directors who were featured in that great documentary from a few years ago called Not Quite Hollywood. That's so good. <laughs> uh, which is about like the great era of Australian exploitation films, like the 70s and 80s. It's a great doc if you haven't seen it. Um, and he was one of the directors whose work was featured kind of prominently in the movie. So after I saw the movie, I just added a bunch of people to my, my list. Uh, whatever was available, and this was one of the films that was available. It is about a man whose car stalls at the Star Drive-In, finds himself trapped in a bizarre and terrifying situation. The drive-in is really a scrap heap for society's cast-offs, a government-sponsored concentration camp where the weak and unemployed are fed a steady diet of junk food, music, and movies. Whoa, dude. That's from Netflix, Allison. The Netflix <laughs> plot description actually says, whoa, dude. If you think I'm making it up, go look it up. I believe you. I don't. That to me alone is is endorsement enough. If a movie on Netflix has the phrase "Whoa, dude" in the plot description, it's worth checking out. I'm going to bump this one up. I've forgotten this was on there, and I'm going. I got to watch this movie. It sounds awesome. Yeah, it's funny. Brian Trenchard Smith is this very like eloquent Englishman yes. in the documentary, but he the movies he's directed are just all these delicious, crazy things. Delicious he, in exploitation. Fact, like, he may be best known for directing Leprechaun Four mm. in space. In space. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this one is called Dead End Drive In. If you uh, are interested in watching that on Netflix. Allison, it's time to get to our listeners' choice options. We're back on the horse here. We've got three options, three relatively new releases, one on uh, iTunes and VOD and two on streaming on Netflix. 
I think you have our first option, Allison. I think we've already mentioned it on the show. Yes, it is The Grandmaster, the Wong Kar Wai movie, uh, which is is going to be available on VOD and iTunes on November 26th. Yes. And I think we've already covered it enough. Yes. But Wong Kar Wai, martial arts, You've Tony seen it. Leung. I haven't seen it yet. I'm dying to see it. I'm going to have to see it. You know, it's that time of year. I've got to catch up with right. the movies we missed. This is like in the top three of the movies that I'm most excited to see that I missed. So please vote for this one. What's our second pick? Our second pick is actually a movie I'm really looking forward to seeing, too. And this one actually was also a listener recommendation. We're cramming another one in here. It is available now on Netflix. It is called Grabbers, and it was recommended to us, although I had heard of it before, uh, by Keith in Virginia Beach. He says, beyond the generic title and cover art lies a nice little Edgar Wright-inspired trifle. If you are looking for a unique take on the monster-alien invasion genre— Involving an extreme alien allergy to alcohol and some intentionally inebriated locals all set in a small Irish coastal village, then this is the only film for you. So the premise is there's an alien invasion in a small Irish town. The aliens are allergic to alcohol. It's their kryptonite, essentially. So so to save the day, our heroes must remain drunk at all times. Brilliant. Uh, That's all I need to know. I am definitely looking forward to seeing it. It is called Grabbers, and it is available now on Netflix. What's option three, Allison? Option three is another one we've already talked about. It is Francis Ha, which it seems it seemed like since you know it's now available on Netflix and on DVD. It seemed like a really good one to talk about. Uh, Noah Baumbach, major filmmaker. Greta Gerwig, you know, is an actress who I think we've been watching her career for a long time. So it's, it's great to see her in these bigger movies. And that is currently available on Netflix as well. Okay, so... Which movie should we review on the next episode of SVU? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 25th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, at filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Monday, December 2nd. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. And if you have any, definitely send them our way, either via email or on Twitter. We always check the Twitter account. We're happy to send out your recommendations. So please let us know. Keep the recommendations coming. Yes. And for Film Spotting SVU, I am Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.